I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the letter of Paul to the Galatians. A few weeks ago, we began a series on this letter. We've covered verses 1 through 5, and we will reread those, as well as our text for this morning, which is verses 6 through 10. Hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And our text again this morning is the verses 6 through 10. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this past week, the Australian Bureau of Statistics released the results of the 2021 census. And one of the things we learned from the census is that about 40% of the people who responded said that they have no religion. Clearly, we live in a time when a lot of people don't really know what faith is about. But even among those who profess to be Christians, less and less seem to understand what is supposed to happen in a church. That's because they don't know what a church is. A church is more than just this building and the things that come with it. The church, biblically speaking, is the people of God. The church is composed of people who have been called by his word, cleansed by his word, and renewed by his word. So the word is central. 
God called the world into being by his word, and he calls the church into being by his word. So the word, the preaching of the gospel, is central to every worship service. And that is why the gospel is one area where Satan loves to destroy a church. He also tried to destroy the Galatians. Paul wrote to them, and he tells them, do not let go of the true gospel. And this, this message is still relevant for us today, which is why we are going to take his admonition to heart 2,000 years later. The admonition is that we do not let go of the true gospel. The reason for that is because to desert the true gospel is to desert the grace of God, and to preach a different gospel is to invoke the curse of God. There's something quite abnormal about the text that we're looking at this morning. The normal way of addressing a letter would have been to greet them with a few pleasantries. There was a very specific etiquette to writing letters in the ancient Greco-Roman world. There were very specific rules you had to follow. Paul follows most of these rules most of the time. And in this one, he completely ignored the last rule, which is that you show gratitude to give you express some form of thanksgiving that would have been normal that's what he does in philippians 1 for instance but he does not do that here instead he severely rebukes these people he takes them to task it's as if this letter when you read it and you really understand the passion with what he with which he wrote it is as if this letter is about to spontaneously combust with the pent-up frustration of the pent-up energy of his frustration with them. He is absolutely astounded, absolutely amazed that they're turning away from the God who called them. This is a harsh rebuke, but in the midst of this rebuke, it's, it's easy to miss something important. He begins with grace. Even in this rebuke, there is a reminder of God's grace. Grace always comes first, and that is the very essence of the gospel, isn't it? That grace always comes first. And they had experienced that grace. He reminds them of that. He says, you are so quick to desert him who called you in the grace of Christ. They had been called. God had called them from the darkness of ignorance. He had called them from, from heathendom into a living relationship of faith with him. And it was God's initiative, it was God's idea, God was the one who had actually called them. And it's passive. They were called. It was something that happened to them. So this gracious call originated in the grace of God. He called them through the gospel, just like he has done for you. God called you as well through the gospel. So consider, brothers and sisters, his undeserved grace Consider his great compassion and his kindness, his love towards you sitting here this morning that he called you. Even if, even if you struggle with your faith, even if you grew up with it and now you're trying to take ownership of it and you're, you're wondering you know, how much of this is actually real, you are here this morning and the gospel is going out to you as it has so often and that is God's call to you. Consider his love and his grace to you. He called he called them in the grace of Christ, and he calls us, and that reminds us of what could have been. God could have left us in our sins. He could have 
judged us. He could have carried out judgment on us. But the gospel says it is possible for you to be right with God. It is possible to have forgiveness of sins. It is possible to have a renewed life. It is possible to become a new person. It is possible to break with everything that that drags you back from serving the Lord in truth. It's possible to have all of these things through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to relate to God than through Jesus Christ. So Christ always must be central in the gospel. There's no, in the preaching, there's no other way than grace. And that means that by definition, you never receive this grace by works. You can only ever respond with unconditional faith. You were never able to mix grace and works. You're never able to accept God's grace and then say, or expect that your own actions will somehow contribute to making you even more accepted in the eyes of God. Grace, by its very nature, has to exclude all works. If it included works even a little bit, it would stop being grace. Paul makes that very point in Romans 11, verse 6, when he says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And God is the only one who can give that to you. But the problem is, these people have turned away from that grace. And so Paul uses very, very strong language here. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Deserting, deserting is a very strong word. Deserting is what a soldier does when he's supposed to fight for his country, but he runs away. And in the Greek language, the the, the word deserting could also describe a, a politician who betrayed his country. The NKJV translates this as turn away, which is also a possible translation. Evokes images of God's people in the desert, you know, post-Sinai turning away in the worship of the golden calf and turning away at other times. There's, there's a very serious uh, weight that comes with this charge. And we might categorize this behavior as misunderstanding, wouldn't we? We'd say, wow, these people are still young believers. They, they don't completely get it yet. Well, Paul didn't see it that way. He says, you, do, you did get it. I explained everything to you. And he's highlighting the seriousness of this. And at the same time, there's more grace because he's reminding them this is in the present tense. You are turning away. You're not completely gone yet. It's, it's happening right now, but we can still stop this. You need to repent and turn back. You need to understand and get in your head again what the true gospel is about. That's grace. God doesn't leave his people without direction. He warns them. And yes, Paul is hard on them. You have to do that sometimes because they, they, they're in over their head. They don't understand what they've gotten themselves into. Remember what we learned last time. Paul had come and he had preached God's grace to these people. God's grace is free. God gives us grace with no prerequisite, no qualification. But then other teachers came along after after Paul left. And they said, well, you know what? Um, he, He got most of it right, but you're missing an important point. And they said, if you're a Christian, essentially you need to become a Jew first before... Uh, before you get to become a Christian, or at least keep the main Jewish laws. In other words, you need to do something for it first. You need to improve yourself first. You need to obey these commandments first, and, and then you can call yourself a Christian. 
So then the reason for you being a Christian has a lot to do with something that you put into it. Think about the conversation Paul had with a jailer from Philippi. You remember that? Paul and Silas were um, beaten, and they were put in prison at one point. And then there's an earthquake, and um, miraculously, um, the things that hold them back, the stocks and blocks and whatnot, fall off. And, and the jailer comes to them. He says, what, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. He has no idea yet who this person is, what his, his life has been like, or anything like that. But he says, there's one thing you need to do if you want to be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, these Jewish teachers would have said, become Jewish, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Gospel is so simple. It is so beautiful. It's God's masterpiece. It's beautiful in its elegance, in its simplicity. There's nothing else like it in all the world. Every other religion says you need to do something in order for you to become right with God. The true gospel says God calls you in the grace of Christ, then he does something for you, and he does something in you. He justifies you, and he sanctifies you. That's God's masterpiece. It is so simple that a child can understand it, so profound that it takes your whole life to really fully understand the implications of this in every detail of your existence. But sometimes people try to meddle with God's masterpiece. This actually reminds us of a very funny story that happened about 10 years ago, true story, happened in uh, Borja, a little town in northeastern Spain. There was a small Roman Catholic church there with a painting of Jesus on the wall dating to about the 1930s. The painting was beginning to flake off the wall, so there was a congregation member, an old lady, 81 years old, Cecilia Jimenez, who attempted to restore the painting by herself. But she was an amateur, so she completely botched it. And she, met, she meant well. She meant to restore it to what she thought it was supposed to look like. But the resulting restoration was so bad that it actually became famous. You can, you can, if you look this up online, you can see the before and after pictures, and it's indescribably bad what she did to this painting. So it became internet famous, and suddenly Borja, this very tiny town in the middle of nowhere in Spain, is on the map, and hundreds of thousands of people came to see this painting because, well, if you're going to travel through Spain anyway, you may as well. The really funny part was that the lady was completely unrepentant. Initially, she had anxiety and stuff and went to see a psychologist because, well, who wants to be famous for this? But um, afterwards, she was rather pleased that she had put her town on the map. And she says, quote, the restoration has put Borja on the world map, meaning I've done something for my village that no one else was able to do. Most of us would not have the audacity to improve on a masterpiece or to try to restore it to what we think it should be and not to respond like that afterwards either. But she did. And it's funny in this situation, but why, why would we try to do it on the much greater masterpiece of God's grace? 
You know what our problem is, dear brothers and sisters, is that we are becoming increasingly ignorant. We are in a Reformed church. A Reformed church is the one place where you are most likely to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. And we're not saying that to praise ourselves. The point is that that this is a historical reality. Preaching has always been central to the Reformed faith. This is why the Reformed churches were born. God called us out of the 16th century muddle of Roman Catholic ignorance and superstition. And, And this is why we exist, because the gospel became central to our life as church and as Christians. But how many of us today still understand that? How many of us today still appreciate that for what it is? And how many of us today are still passionate about developing a clear knowledge of the gospel. As we have become more and more prosperous, also as free reform community, have we not become preoccupied with other things? You compare the basic level of knowledge of matters of the faith now compared to what it was 50 years ago. Is it better or worse? You be the judge. We're a little bit like that man in the fable of the lead-painted lamp One of these fables, not sure where it came from. But the story is that the man went to a bazaar and he bought a lamp made out of lead. Lead, of course, is not very expensive, which is why we use it for fishing lures. And the lamp sat on a shelf for years. And then one day the man was polishing it. He scratched it by accident and he found out that the, the lead was actually lead paint. The lamp itself was actually made of solid gold. Well, then he had a very different attitude towards that lamp. He suddenly treated it like something very precious and valuable. So what changed in that situation? Well, the lamp didn't change. The lamp was the same all along, but the man's attitude towards it changed. That's how it is with us and the gospel too. The gospel does not need to be updated. The gospel does not need to be repackaged. It does not need to be made relevant for a modern audience. If we have a problem with the gospel, we're the ones that need to change. Or rather, we need to pray that the Lord would change our attitude towards it, because that is, of course, also central to the gospel, that you do not change yourself on these fundamental levels. The gospel is unique. There is no other gospel. It's reflected in the last half of verse 6, the first half of verse 7. He's saying, you are turning to a different gospel, Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There is no other gospel, he's saying. All you will find is people who distort the true gospel. But what they end up having is not actually a gospel because a true gospel is, as we say, sui generis. It's in a category of its own. There is no other thing like it that exists. Now, some of you might be skeptical about that. You might be listening, maybe listening in even on the live feed. And you might be wondering in the back of your mind, is this really true? After all, we live in a postmodern age. And we live in an age in which The very foundation of our reasoning as Western people has been shaped by postmodern thinking. One of the fundamental tenets of postmodernity, of postmodern thinking, is that all reality is created by language. 
Whether or not something is true has less to do with what it is and more to do with what you say about it and the person who says it. In other words, I might say that something is true. You can say that the opposite is true. And we can both be right in a postmodern world. I can have my truth. You can have yours. And as long as we respect each other's truths, we don't need to agree. And that's quite all right. Now, don't think for a moment that this thinking exists only outside of the church. Uh, certainly, once you go beyond reformed boundaries, uh, you'll find it actually quite a lot in, in, um, in many strands of Christianity. And even within the Reformed Church, maybe even within our church, we have, we have a little bit of that attitude. As long as you feel close to God, as long as you're convinced that you're doing the right thing, it doesn't really matter what you believe. In um, all of the times that you've experienced people withdrawing, which as pastor you see quite a lot, Have you ever seen someone withdrawing who was convinced that what they were doing was wrong? No. They know what the Reformed doctrine is. They know what we teach. They know that what they're headed towards in terms of doctrine is sometimes quite different. And they're okay with both of those coexisting. That's really in its essence is a form of postmodern thinking. You might not label it that way, but but you, you absorb these things from the culture that you're in, right? It's cultural osmosis. As long as you feel close to God, as long as you're convinced that you're doing the right thing, it doesn't really matter what you believe. The problem is we don't get to do that. We don't get to put our own spin on reality, then assume that to be true, and then judge what Paul is saying by that standard. It doesn't work that way. It is not your gospel in that sense. It is the gospel of Christ. It is not yours to do with as you please. As we saw previously, Paul had received a divine commission from God. He's going to explain that more in the passage that follows. So we, from our Western culture, do not get to change the meaning of the gospel he taught to suit our own purposes. We simply don't have the authority to do that. The very nature of authority is that it has to come from outside of you. You see that, don't you? If a message is authoritative to us, it has to come from outside of us. If it comes from within us, it stops becoming authoritative. Then it's just a question of preference. Then the whole thing falls apart. In the end, anything other than the true gospel is powerless. And that's really what it comes down to. It's not about going from one preference to another. If you desert the true gospel, you desert the grace of God. These false teachers were taking these new believers and leading them back to living under the Jewish law. But that law was powerless to save and it was powerless to change people. And Paul knew this from personal experience. Before his conversion, he was a fanatic Pharisee. And he was fully convinced in his own mind that he was right with God and that he was doing the right thing for God. He was righteous in the eyes of God, and he wasn't, not even close. His whole life was based on this illusion. The law had not been able to prevent him from sinning against God's people. The law had not even enabled him to see that what he was doing was wrong. And then he encounters the living Christ on the road to Damascus. 
and he received the gospel of grace himself. And you know what? He was righteous just like that. In, in the blink of an eye, he was justified. He was righteous in the eyes of God and he had done nothing for it in spite of all of his sins. And now these Judaizers, these false teachers are taking his converts and they're going back to the place that he came from and they're saying, this is what the gospel is about. And he says, this is so wrong. That's why he responds so strongly. He says, don't do it. Do not let go of the true gospel. To desert the true gospel is to desert the grace of God. And he goes on to explain that to preach a different gospel is to invoke the curse of God. Now, one of the interesting things about Western Christianity, and I'm speaking very broadly here, Western Christianity, one of the interesting things about it is how much of it has been shaped by celebrity culture. We live in a time when anyone who is a celebrity automatically seems to have authority and qualifications to speak on any topic at all. So you get Greta Thunberg speaking about climate change, for example. You get uh, models giving their opinions, Miss USA giving her opinion on politics. Someone becomes famous and suddenly they're an authority on all sorts of stuff. Well, this celebrity culture has infected Western Christianity. What this means is that there are all sorts of people out there with very large audiences, much larger than what we have here. And they preach and teach absolute nonsense. And there's thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people that are just eating this up every week because the speakers are famous. So the problem there is that, is that they are looking at the source of the message. They look at who the message is coming from. They're not critically thinking about the message itself, but they're looking at who this is coming from. And it was a problem, it is a problem today, but it was a problem for the Galatians as well. And the Apostle Paul takes them to task for that. He says in verse 8, even, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's quite something. Imagine for a moment that an angel suddenly appeared to you and taught you things that sounded biblical. Would you listen? If it sounded biblical, but it wasn't from the Bible, it's kind of far-fetched. I mean, which of us has ever seen, seen an angel? These things don't happen to us, but imagine if it did. Would you, would you pay close attention? Would you listen? Well, that's exactly how Mormonism started. Joseph Smith is the founder of Mormonism, and he claimed that an angel appeared to him starting in 1823 and directed him to the golden plates that Smith later used to write the Book of Mormon. Smith thought everyone else had it wrong. Mormonism was the true faith. Well, guess what? Mormonism is a false gospel. It teaches all sorts of strange things. For example, that God the Father has a physical body, that he lives on a planet somewhere far away from here, that Jesus and Satan are brothers, and very many other bizarre, strange teachings And there's more than 8 million people alive today who believe this. And who go door to door spreading this false gospel. This is real. The fact is that the power and the truth of the gospel does not lie in the person teaching it. The power lies in the message itself. 
So your standard for listening should never be, is this person famous? It should be, instead, is what I am hearing the true gospel? And for the gospel to be true, it needs to be complete. Maybe you've heard a preacher on the internet that you like listening to. You might think, well, what he's saying is not that different from what I've heard before. And, you know, that could be, maybe, maybe the part that you're hearing is not wrong as such. But if that's the only part that you ever hear, you have not heard the true gospel. The true gospel is a gospel as it comes to us from the apostles, from the prophets, as it's given to us in the Bible. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and that gospel never depends on the person bringing it. So you should not pay attention. Even You should not pay more attention to one preacher over another just because the one happens to be famous. And there's a, very, a couple of very specific applications here. One is that we should not avoid going to a worship service just because it happens to be a reading service. Let's be honest, we've all been tempted by this before. You think to yourself, well, we're having a reading service this afternoon. Why don't I just stay home and I'll listen to the live feed from another church? It's okay because it's a church from our federation. Don't want to tune into Mundajong. Let's listen to some other church. But the power of the gospel does not depend on the person who delivers it. The power of the gospel is inherent in the gospel itself. And the Holy Spirit can manifest that power in very remarkable ways sometimes. Some of you may have heard the name Jonathan Edwards before. Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century American revivalist preacher and theologian. He's best known for preaching a, a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hand, Hands of an Angry God. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that his delivery was apparently not, not all that exciting. He was known to be a very solemn preacher. He was not dynamic in that sense. He didn't pace back and forth on the stage and preach without notes. He, he used a manuscript and he followed it very tightly. Yeah, when he preached this particular sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he couldn't even finish it. People were so smitten by the gospel that they were crying out to God. They were holding on to the pillars of the church because in their mind they were already falling into hell. And the man couldn't even finish his, his sermon. I had to get the elders, and I think there were some other preachers present at the time. They had to disperse those among the audience to calm people down. Really interesting thing was that a few weeks before he'd preached that same sermon in his own congregation, and nothing had happened. Well, something had happened. Something always happens. But it wasn't that that happened. And yet he guest preached this somewhere else in, in an area, in a church that was known for being resistant to the gospel with people that were indifferent. And he got this response. Well, it didn't depend on him, did it? That's the power of the gospel worked by the Holy Spirit. So preachers should never preach a different gospel. And you, dear brothers and sisters, should not desire a different gospel. To desert the true gospel is to desert the grace of God. To preach a different gospel is to invoke the curse of God. And these things are real. The apostle writes, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And he, he drives this, home, this point home by repeating it twice. What does he mean with cursed? 
The word translated as accursed is used in the Old Greek Testament as well, and it reflects the, the Hebrew word harem, ban, to be under the ban, to be devoted to destruction, to be devoted to the Lord by destruction. When something was placed under the ban, under the curse, under harem, it was devoted to the Lord by destruction. And you can find an example of this in Exodus 22, verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. It was a way of being set apart for God. And you might think to yourself, well, that sounds a little bit like the definition for holy. Uh, it's very interesting that there is, is on, on a conceptual level, some connection between these two ideas. You can be set apart for God to his service. That's what it means to be holy. Or you can be set apart for destruction. That's what it means to be under the ban. The ultimate form of that, of course, is hell. To be under God's wrath and destruction forever. To be eternally condemned by him. And that's what Paul is referring to here. He's saying, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be damned. That's what he's saying. No matter who he is, no matter how famous he is, no matter his qualifications or education, let him be damned. That is powerful language. That is not what you would expect to hear from someone like Paul, but he's saying this in the full religious sense of the word. And it's extremely offensive no matter what era you live in. But why is he so unrelenting to these false teachers? Because of what happens when you get it wrong. Because of what they're saying. They're saying the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law is still in effect. If that's true, we are still under the Mosaic covenant. If we're still under the Mosaic covenant, we're still a part of this age. If we're still a part of this age, the age that is coming still needs to come. If the age to come is still coming, then Jesus was not the Messiah. If Jesus was not the Messiah, you are still dead in your sin. Those are the consequences. Those are the logical consequences of following anyone who attempts to add anything to the gospel. Because, beloved, you cannot have it both ways. Or as the Catechism puts it, one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is a complete Savior, or those who by true faith, either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in him all that is necessary for salvation. Either he is not a Savior, or he is a complete Savior. There is no in-between. It matters to get the gospel right. The gospel is inclusive in its scope. It is meant for all people without distinction. In that sense, it is generous and inclusive, and there is nothing in this whole world that is more inclusive than the gospel of the living God. People talk about being inclusive today. They mean something very different. And even the most tolerant and inclusive person you could think of um, is nothing compared to God, the inclusive God, with the inclusive gospel, which is for all people without distinction. But it is absolutely exclusive in its claims. There is no room for half a gospel or for a whole gospel assembled in a different order or a gospel that caters to our wishes or, or, or any other kind of gospel, no matter how good it makes us feel. And that's offensive. It's always going to offend our natural sensibilities because it asserts authority over us. It tells us that before you live, you must die in a spiritual sense, that you die to your old nature, that you are 
without God's regenerating grace, you are completely dead in your sin. And that when he renews you, you need to die to yourself and to your old nature. And it tells you you are a sinner. It calls you to turn to God on his terms, not your own. To preach a different gospel is to invoke the curse of God. And it's never going to be a popular message with, with man, smart, accomplished human beings in the 21st century. And so we find that thought reflected in verse 10 as well when Paul says, look, am I trying to seek the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He's saying, look, we're not doing this to be popular. What did you think? Did you really think this had something to do with popularity? He's saying, I'm doing this to please God, even if no one else is pleased in it. At the beginning of the sermon, we noted how the Australian Bureau of Statistics recently released a survey how 40% of those who responded said they had no religion. I left out one fact. Only 11 years ago, that number was at 22%. So the number has almost doubled in about a decade of people who say that they have no religion. Oh, that's really sad. As our culture is deserting the true gospel, it's deserting the grace of God. What else is left but his wrath? That's why we need to continue coming to church because this is where God does his work, his work of grace. He continues it here. He can continue it anywhere, but the primary means of grace is the preaching of the gospel. As it says in the canons of Dort, just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the preaching of the gospel, so he maintains, continues, and perfects it by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and by the use of the sacraments. So God, having given us the gospel, wants to maintain us in it. That's why you need to be here. Come to church. This is where it happens. This is where you hear the gospel of God's grace over and over. This is where you hear the true gospel. This is where you are transformed. What could be greater than that? Amen.